Just as expected, Mark tells us something that really shouldn't be. Mark says in chapter 15, look at chapter chapter 15, verse 16. Remember, Jesus has just been delivered to Pilate. In verse 16, after he's talked to Pilate and Pilate says, okay, fine, let's go ahead and have the guy scourged and, and deliver him to be crucified. Then the soldiers, are you in verse 16, led him away inside the praetorium. That is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. Guys, this is a Roman battalion. Do you know how many men are present in a Roman battalion? 600. 600 imperial guards. Not military. 600 of the imperial guards are there. Now, we do not fully understand that it would be so extremely odd and rare for the entire soldiery at least 200 men, if not 600, to be called together to mock and beat a single Jewish little rabbi? What a weird thing to do, Mark. Why are you telling us that they called together the Imperial Guard to mock and beat this little Jewish nobody? This is weird. It shouldn't be like that. Something else is going on here. Aha. Uh-huh. Especially since the Romans were accustomed to crucifying up to 500 Jews a day. Do you understand? 500 a day. So it should just blow our minds that Mark would say, and they, the soldiers that took Jesus from Pilate away, called together the entire cohort of special forces to mock and beat one guy. And he was a nobody. Rome doesn't even care who he is or know who he is. Or maybe they do. Mark's description of Jesus follows a formula. And they clothed him in a purple robe. And after twisting together some thorns into a crown, they placed it on his head. Now you got to wonder, where in this courtyard, oh man, where in this courtyard, which imagine with pavers, huge Roman pavers, those are perfectly flat marble stones, each weighing about a thousand pounds. And every wall that you see there and all of the paper is all plastered, perfectly smooth and painted white and green and blue and red, it's gorgeous. It's this absolutely most beautiful palace forum, right? Where are you gonna find a thorn bush? (laughs) Which is a weed. Where are you gonna find a thorn bush? In the praetorium of the palace of Pilate? Probably nowhere. Nowhere is the right answer. You wouldn't find a thorn bush within a mile of that place. Number one, it couldn't grow through marble. It's rock. Number two, you're going to have weeds in the king's palace? What does that tell you about when they went and t- 
twisted together a crown of thorns? They made an effort. When did they make that effort? See, I think it was a preconceived thing. It had to have been. They had to send some low man on the totem pole. Hey, Maximus. Hey, Minimus. Why don't you run along and go find us a, a big old thorn. We got to twist that thing into a crown. For what? Oh, we're going to do something. There's a guy coming through here. He's going to be processed a little bit later. But we're going to do something special for him. Go find us a crown of thorns. Okay. So yeah, they've got to preconceive that idea and have that ready for when Jesus gets brought. Now, you got to wonder, where in the world are they going to get a robe? A purple robe to put on Jesus. There's only two people that have a purple robe, by the way. Who's one of them? Pilate has one. Do you think he's going to let his robe be borrowed so that soldiers can spit on it and they can bleed? Jesus can bleed all over it. There's another robe available. It's the one on the statue, the one on the statue of Jupiter. So if they did take that robe off the statue of Jupiter, what did they place on Jesus' head? Crown of thorns. What they put in his right hand? There's one gospel that says they put something in his right hand. No, it was a staff, it was a scepter in his right hand. And they said, hail to the king of Jews. And that's when they spit on him. And that's when they punched him. That's when they knocked him out and hit him with sticks on his head, driving those thorns into his skull, into his cranium. So, Avdat wine, what is it famous for? Ah, it's wine mixed with myrrh. When have you ever heard of someone mixing wine with myrrh? Oh, that's right. When they gave it to Jesus on the cross. Mark 15. It's it's myrrh. Vinegar like you think of vinegar is not, vinegar is like cheap wine back in that day. That's what Jesus was given on the cross. It was wine mixed with myrrh. Before reaching Golgotha, we say, the soldiers offer Jesus myrrh wine, but he refuses to drink. That's Mark 15, 23. Why the offer of this expensive delicacy? Why would they offer Jesus even vinegared wine mixed with myrrh? That's like gold. Why would they do that? Ah, they're following a formula that's starting to take shape. And why would Mark interject this seemingly trivial detail, like right here? Myrrh and frankincense, by the way, are both linked to resurrection. Does anyone know what ancient city was named after a rare and incredibly expensive spice called myrrh? It's an ancient city. In the Middle East. (laughs) Smyrna. Have you ever heard of Smyrna? It was destroyed and rebuilt three times. It was resurrected three times. It's kind of like the Phoenix. Jesus is given frankincense and what at his birth? Myrrh. Now a Near Eastern Jew would have immediately thought, whoa, that's about resurrection. Yeah, because frankincense and myrrh are about resurrection. Huh. 
The wearing of purple, by the way, was outlawed for anyone below equestrian rank. What's equestrian? Say it again. It's a horse. Equines are horses. Bovines are cows, right? Canine, feline. We got them all, right? So yes, below equestrian rank. So anyone that didn't ride a horse, which that was highfalutin, wasn't even allowed to wear purple. Okay? The scriptures record that they began to salute him. And their shout to Jesus was, Hail, King of the Jews! What other shout did that sound like? The shout when, they, when the triumphant rode by, Hail, right? Hail Caesar, right? King of Rome and Son of God. All right, um, in Mark's depiction, Jesus is both the sacrificial bull and he's the triumphator. Remember the official who carries over his shoulder a double-bladed axe, the instrument of the victim's death? Now, do you guys remember Mark's seemingly odd interruption that when Jesus was made to carry the cross, they stopped some guy. Who was he? Simon of Cyrene, and they said, no, 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 you carry the beam. You carry the beam. So Simon of Cyrene, who's like, what the heck? I wasn't doing anything. They put the beam on his shoulder, and he carries it behind Jesus. Now, we've always thought Jesus wasn't able to carry. He's carrying a full cross, but no, he's not carrying a full cross. These were kept in the ground, buried probably a foot to two feet deep, and they're square, and this is what remained. And then they had these holes in them here. That would be, and they carried the horizontal. And it was a towel cross like this. That's what Jesus, and so they took that top beam and they just slid it. This is what it would look like. It had a, right? It had this kind of shape to it. And they'd take that top beam, which bird's eye view looked like this. If I'm looking down on it, look just like this. Okay. That's what Jesus was carrying was this piece right here. And they just take that and they go, and they just dunk, set it right on there. It's about this high off the ground. Yeah, because all they do is bend their knees and nail them to them. So it doesn't need to be very high. So they made Simon and Cyrene carry that. And it wasn't because Jesus couldn't do it. It was because they're following a formula. What's the formula? That's who Simon of Cyrene is. He's that guy. He carries the instrument of the victim's death. Yes. In this case, it's a cross that's going to kill Jesus, not an axe. Sweet. Okay. Uh, Mark gives the name of the place, Golgotha. And then Mark untypically translate it, translates it for his readers. He says, which means the place of a skull. In Hebrew, Golgotha denotes not an empty skull, but more generally the head. This is also true of the Greek translation, kranio. Kranio in Greek sounds like what? Cranium. Yes. It's not an empty head. It's the whole head. This is your cranium. So, therefore, Golgotha, the place of the skull, actually may better be rendered the place of death's head, which would be more accurate, the place of the head. What a, 
do, do, can you see the similarities, the parallels? Okay. At the crucial moment of the triumph, the moment of sacrifice, expensive wine is poured out. Significantly, the very next words in Mark's account are, and they crucified him. This suggests this close association between refusing the wine and the death of the victim. Mark, in his narrative, talks about earlier another scene, the Last Supper. Jesus himself makes this connection between drinking the wine of the Passover. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again of this wine until I drink it anew in the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. And another remarkable detail is Mark tells us that Jesus was executed with two people, one on his right and one on his left. Why accentuate, why um, enhance the scandal of the cross by associating Jesus with criminals? Why do that? Well, in the world of Mark's audience, when you talked about placement on the right hand and on the left hand of an elevated person, it signified royal enthronement. That's what you did with the, the Caesar or the emperor. He would have his regent and his vice regent, one on his right hand, one on his left. That's how you know the, when the king sits on his throne, he has his his most powerful people at his right and left. So Mark says when Jesus was elevated on his throne of glory, they had a bandit crucified to the right and one crucified to the left. It's a picture. It's a picture of royal enthronement. But it's one that escapes us because we just don't know that world. Mm -hmm. Yes. The whole thing was a mockery. Oh, look at the emperor. Hey, what's the emperor need? He needs a vice regent and a regent. Hey, get that bandit. You, you're going to die. Boom, they put him on his right hand. You, you're going to be on his left. And they elevated him. It's all to mock him. So to summarize Mark's narrative as now decoded, the Praetorian guard gathers early in the morning to proclaim a triumphator. They dress Yeshua in the purple triumphal garb and they place a crown of laurel, this time thorns, on his head. The soldiers shout, in acclamation of his lordship, hail king of the Jews. And they perform acts of homage to him. They accompany him through the streets of the city. The sacrifice walks alongside a person who carries the implement of the victim's death. The procession ascends to the place of death's head where the sacrifice is to take place. The triumphator is offered ceremonial wine, which he does not drink, but pours it out on the altar at the moment of sacrifice. Then at the moment of being lifted up before the people, at the moment of the sacrifice, the triumphator is again acclaimed as Lord, in this case, King of the Jews, and his vice regents appear with him in confirmation of his glory. The epiphany of the triumphator is accompanied by divine act. Remember, tree, um, pay. And what are they hoping to see? Not some God materialized, but what do they need to see in order to know? Huh? Which would be what? Give me a sign. Thunder cracking, earthquake. earthquake, lightning bolt, the clouds coming. Do you remember in Jesus' case? Oh what, did that, what did that centurion say at the foot of the cross when Jesus said, it's finished! And the sun went into total eclipse 
and the earthquake so hard that it busted the tombs open. What did the centurion say? Surely this man was the son of God. Because he's Roman and he knows the triumphal procession. He just, <gasps> can you imagine what every Roman in that entire area thought? Isn't that cool the way Mark places it in the framework of a Roman triumphe so that at the moment of the theophany, the moment of the actual triumphe, show yourself. Oh, God shows himself, all right. What tears? See, this is something that just blew me away. And I never got it. Do you know what I heard my whole life? The curtain of the temple tore in two from top to bottom. Why? Well, that was God showing us that now we have access to the Holy of Holies because that's where the veil was. I like that, but it's just not true. <laughs> I wish it were, but it doesn't even make any sense. First of all, Gentiles have no more or less access to God than any Jew ever did. And are you telling me that now that the curtain is ripped in two, a Jewish person could just walk right into the Holy of Holies? Do you know what would happen to him if he did? Die. He's going to die instantly. There's only one person that's allowed to walk into the Holy of Holies, and it's one time in the entire year, and that's the high priest. So does it make any sense that, oh, now we have access. Wait, we all walk in. No. Well, it's symbol, Mr. Dean. It's, symb it's symbolic. That's what I was going to say. Is that like symbolizing God's separation from man kind of coming to him? Really, that veil was to separate the holy place from the most holy place. And the curtain tearing in two did not give Jews access to God, even symbolically, because they already had it. They've had it since day one. You know what it's called? Prayer. They have access to God through prayer anytime they want, whenever they want. So Jew, Gentile had no more or less access because the curtain tore in two. Do you want to know what I think? What does a Jew do at the moment that he receives a sudden, shocking, tragic news that somebody's died? They tear their clothes. In every story, where there's a Jew that received news that somebody just died. They tear their clothes. Now, at the moment of Jesus' death, who tears his clothes? God does. He tears his clothes because his son just died. His precious boy just died. That's what his Jew does. He tears his clothes from top to bottom. Notice how the author's go to great lengths to tell us that the curtain tore from top to bottom. I personally think God tore his shirt when his son died because that's what, that's what you do if you're Jewish. And the Jews always express outwardly what's going on inwardly. There's always a physical to accompany the spiritual. Always, always, always. Listen, for a Jew, this is funny, it's backwards for us. We made it backwards. I'll say this and then I'll end. When do you get baptized as a Christian? Before or after you're saved? See, I, 
I don't know what church you went to, but I never was taught that. I was taught in order to be saved, you must be baptized. In order to receive the forgiveness of sins, you have to be baptized. You weren't baptized after you were saved. You got baptized in order to be saved, right? That's, okay. That's, that's, that's what we were taught our whole life because Peter says in, Rome, in Acts 2, 38, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Not because of the remission of your sins, but in order to have remission of your sins. But you know what a Jew would do? Just like you. I'm saved, baby. Okay, cool. What are you going to do about it? Well, I'm going to go get baptized because I have to show on the outside what's already happened on the inside. Oh, you mean your heart is clean? You've already been forgiven? Yeah. So you go and you make your body clean because your body's been forgiven. Oh, that makes so much sense. How about somebody that is, has had their heart broken in two through sudden and tragic news of someone's death? Well, my heart's just been, oh, that's why I tear my shirt to show my heart, right? This is, this is Jewish. This is Jewish all the way. So um, yeah, that's Triumphe. Pretty cool, huh? Truly, this man was a son of God. The Roman centurion gasps. Pretty awesome. All right. God bless you. Um, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi today, and may the demons know your name and fear.